Hey there folks, it's as if inflation had just been controlled when the Middle East war broke out. So will the danger on the Red Sea cause inflation to spike back up again? I'm Aaron Young. Now, streaming right around the world, this is Ticker Today. And it's so great to be with you wherever you are joining us from right around the world. Also on Ticker Today, Taiwan's new leader faces a hostile China and a minority party. So what will it mean for the region's security? But first... We kick it off with Ticker's Market Watch. Earnings season has kicked off with some mixed results. And how is tension in the Middle East impacting oil and energy prices as well? To go through it all, we're joined by Kyle Rotter from Capital.com. Great to see you today. Uh, talk to us about how traders are responding, I guess, to the mixed signals that we're seeing in the market at the moment. Um, how are they responding? With a level of confusion and volatility, I suppose, and it would seem that the markets are generally trying to, to buy into, if you will, uh, good news on the inflation story. So, I mean, the real focus last week was on price data out of the United States, and the CPI figure uh, was, well, on a headline basis, higher than expected, and then on a core basis, which takes out some of those volatile items like food and energy, not as low as expected. So that kind of shook the confidence that maybe the US Federal Reserve can cut interest rates this year. However, we did get some producer price data out on Friday night, and it came in lower than expected. And then lo and behold, market participants really ramped up bets again of those interest rate cuts from the Fed this year. The interesting dynamic, though, is that it's not really feeding equity markets quite as much as it did at the back end of last year, which raises the question about, well, if these interest rate cuts are coming. What are they signaling? Is it some kind of recession or a severe slowdown? Or is just everything good, all, all the good news priced into, into stocks now? So it's, um, again, a little bit of a mixed one. It's been a pretty poor start, or at least soft overall for, for, for equities in the United States. Um, and it looks like we'll carry on to into this week on, on, on that kind of footing. We often hear that saying, so goes January, as does the rest of the year. Um, what do you think we'll see? So we talk about the varied performance of the big banks as well. Yeah, it was a little bit soft um, and we are starting to see signs that, you know, there is some greater provisioning going on um, among some of the banks to you know, account for some potential bad debts and sort of a slowdown as well uh, in, in the broader economy. And, you know, like like any kind of uh, business, I mean, the, the banks you can see is effectively um, their product is, is selling money. And like any kind of product that you sell, it's about, you know, the volumes that you can sell and the margins you can sell it for, the prices you can sell it for. And there's a sense that credit growth is slowing in the United States and also that margins because of, you know, interest rates and tighter financial conditions in the US might start to, to, to weigh on that those banks too. We also got a lot of news out about, um, again, potential um, uh, 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 headcount uh, reductions um, in, in some of these institutions and, and more or less too on some um, major companies on, on, on Wall Street as well. So it's all feeding into that story that, you know, there is a slowdown coming. It's just sort of the extent of how significant this slowdown happens to be um, and what that, of course, means. For Do you think that's market. actually happening? I mean, we've been talking for the past year about about the potential for a slowdown for a session, and yet every step of the way, the economy has been able to stay just that little bit ahead. Or do you think it will still happen? Yeah, well, I mean, in the United States as well, like it, more than just staying that little bit ahead, you know, the, the, the last quarter of GDP data was incredibly robust and consistent with, you know, a, a very strong expansion of the economy. And there is this kind of argument uh, amongst, you know, some of the very bullishly inclined in, in the markets that, you know, we could be see, seeing some kind of immaculate disinflation, as people are calling it, where inflation can continue to trend lower because it is, um, but growth can remain reasonably, reasonably robust and the labour market can kind of maintain some of the gains from the pandemic. I'm a bit sceptical 
still on that particular view, considering um, some of the, I guess, uh, indicators in the market, as well as you know maybe some softness that we're starting to see in, in forward-looking indicators mac uh, in terms of macroeconomic data. Uh, but there's certainly uh, very, very true that we've we've seen a, a remarkable resilience, especially in the United States, but also uh, more broadly in the in the global and, and even the domestic economy here as well. Right. Let's talk about what's happening in the Red Sea and the Middle East more broadly. I mean, we're seeing strikes in Yemen uh, against the Houthis. We're seeing all sorts of things happening in Gaza, as we've been reporting for the past few months. What about global oil prices? We've been seeing at the Bowser here in Australia, they've been coming down. Inflation has been getting under control. Uh, some shock jumps south downwards for inflation in the UK, in the US, even in Australia. It feels like just as things are getting good again, all of a sudden um, there's this tension in the Red Sea that could lift prices. Do you think it will happen? Uh, at the margins, yes, uh, to how significant that would be. It's, it's hard to say at the moment. I mean, I think we are obviously uh, seeing express in oil markets, these tensions in the Middle East, and we have seen prices a little bit higher over the course of the last week. Uh, you could probably argue that broader financial markets are largely ignoring the risk of a, of a more uh, widespread escalating conflicts in, in the region, which would be very, very impactful. But at the, at the moment, the market seems to be considering that a fairly low risk. Um, as far as inflation goes, again, it's going to be um, and it'll much it actually lifts things because the other thing that we're seeing at the moment is some of the baseline effects from last year uh, when we did see that big drop in oil prices from well above $100 down to sort of 70 or 80 has already been sort of put into the data. So yeah. headline inflation reads like and we saw in the United States is actually picking up slightly. So um, again, if we see things uh, escalate further, it, it could be a bit of a troubling thing for central bankers and policymakers to bring inflation down. But there's also the demand side of the equation that we're seeing too. Um, yeah. There's real pessimism about demand going forward. So that's keeping uh, prices relatively depressed. Kyle Rotto from Capital.com. Always appreciate your time here on Ticker. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Cheers. In a defining moment for Taiwan's democracy, the island nation's voters have decisively spoken, granting the ruling Democratic Progressive Party an historic third presidential term. In a moment, we'll hear from the airport economist Tim Harcourt on this. But first, this is an election that brought China a result it feared the most. While China may prefer to downplay the outcome, the message from Taiwan is clear and unavoidable. Taiwan's meticulous approach to holding elections ensures a swift and transparent conclusion to the voting process. Other democracies around the world should take note. The election result signals a strong rebuff to China's unrelenting pressure for reunification. Despite Beijing's rhetoric and influence, the Taiwanese people have shown a clear preference for a leader who champions their distinct identity. This election was about a rejection of China's power. This third consecutive win for the DPP, unprecedented in Taiwan's current electoral system, is not without its challenges. The party faces diminished parliamentary support, reflecting public discontent with domestic issues such as housing affordability and stagnant wages. The legislative setback could hinder Li's ability to govern effectively. The significance of Taiwan's election, though, extends beyond its borders, occurring amidst escalating geopolitical tensions between Beijing and Washington. 
All right, joining us now to discuss this pivotal national election is Professor Tim Harcourt of UTS, host of the Airport Economist and, of course, the Great Transformation right here on Ticker. Tim, great to see you. You were no doubt watching what happened over the weekend in Taiwan and also China's reaction that the world is waiting for. But when we talk first about what happened in Taiwan, do you think the result was as close as we'd expected? Well, it wasn't a landslide, uh, Aaron, but I'd say it was a comfortable, resounding victory to the DPP. And as you say in your report, it's um, a record third term for the DPP in the presidential election. Neither the KMT nor the DPP have won the, the third term uh, consecutively before. So that's significant. Um, however, um, you know, the legislature, of course, will be effectively a home parliament. And the third party, the the, T, uh, the Taiwan's People's Party, seemed to have made up a reasonable amount of ground amongst young voters, and that was reflected in the legislative vote uh, as well as the presidential. How do you think the result would have been received in Beijing, Washington, Tokyo, even in Australia, particularly in Beijing? This, as we say, is probably the worst result the worst outcome that they could have hoped for. No, that's right. I mean, they, they were clearly backing the, the, the KMT as the more, uh, I guess, pro-Beijing party. Uh, and interestingly enough, I mean, all three parties said that they want the, the status quo, but the DPP said the way to, the way to respect and maintain independence for, for Taiwan is to build strong relationships with Japan, with uh, the US, USA, UK indeed with Australia, well, the KMT thinks having closer dialogue with Beijing will basically allow Taiwan to keep their status quo. So it's a very much a different approach and Beijing wouldn't be happy. And uh, the Australian, uh, the Chinese ambassador to Australia made some pretty, uh, pretty uh, ruthless comments before the election. He won't be happy either. Absolutely. Um, now, from the outside world, we look at Taiwan and think that their election issues would all be about their relationship with China, the possibility of China wanting to take back Taiwan as well. But what about some of the domestic issues that people will be looking at? No doubt, post-pandemic, they'd be looking at the same issues that any democracy would be after as well. Things like a housing shortage, things like uh, the cost of everything having gone up as well. Do we know much about that? Yeah, all politics is local, as Tepanil used to say. I mean, when you look at the uh, election, there was concern about the housing issues of housing prices, the demographics of Taiwan, uh, you know, similar to uh, countries like Australia with uh, an ageing population, uh, concerns about wages, concerns about the cost of living. So domestically, big issues there for Taiwan to, uh, to look at. They did reasonably well during COVID, but they, again... Uh, are looking to you know forge strong trade and investment agreements internationally and look at ways to you know, continue their amazing prosperity that's that's occurred in in Taiwan. How difficult is it for countries like Australia and the United States to get the balance right, trying to repair very tense relationships with Beijing at a time when trying to support democracy? Yeah, I think it's interesting the congratulatory messages. I mean, from the United States and Japan. They're very clear congratulations on the presidential election victory to the president. Uh, the EU wouldn't even say the word president, and uh, Japan got ticked off by Beijing for using the term presidential. So there's clearly a tightrope with with language. But, uh, you know, you'd say that, uh, you know, Taiwan would be a, a good member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It'd be good for Australia to have a free trade agreement with Taiwan because commercially 
you know, there's a lot of opportunities between Taiwan uh, and, and Australia. So commercially going forward, there's no reason why you wouldn't forge ahead uh, now the election's over. And what happens from here? I mean, obviously, we're waiting to see if there'll be a, a show of force from Beijing about this as well. Uh, the opposition in Taiwan that lost saying we didn't try hard, hard enough, but certainly to win three terms, it's somewhat unprecedented here too. What do you expect from relationships between China and Taiwan from here? Well, I think the president lacks standard pretty firm, saying that we're not scared of you, Beijing. We have a democracy. We have an open, transparent, very transparent electoral process, which is the envy of the world in many ways. So I think that's pretty clear. And uh, I think the Taiwanese people have you know, given a clear clear message that Taiwan's very distinct. You know, it's got yeah. indigenous culture, the Portuguese, the Japanese, the Dutch, uh, and it's, uh, you know, a, a, a multicultural, yeah. uh, you know, country with, uh, with great prosperity. All right, Tim Harcourt, always appreciate your time. Of course, the airport economist and the host of The Great Transformation here on Ticker. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Good to be with you. More Ticker right after this. You're watching Ticker. We'll have more in just a few minutes. 